0: If I were to ask my college students, what is popular music, which I do, most of them would give a response that focuses on the contemporary moment, music that's popular now, what's playing on the radio. Taylor Swift When we talk about popular culture, we generally focus on the newness of things, what's trending. Popular music especially seems insistent on celebrating the current moment. Embedded within the musical present, however, is a reenactment of past musical experiences, songs, and artists that not only shape the current moment, but whose histories are reconfigured in the present.
1: If your lover wants to hold your hand, want to hold theirs too They may say hello, goodbye to you They may say hello, goodbye to you And when you're riding in a yellow submarine Love is all you need Love is all you need
0: you're listening to Ethnomusicology Today, a podcast produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology devoted to the exploration of contemporary issues in global music studies. I'm Trevor
1: Harvey.
0: In this episode, we talk with John Myers, whose article, Still Like That Old Time Rock and Roll, was recently published in the journal Ethnomusicology. In his article, John examines the rock and roll tribute band phenomenon as a case study for exploring the active role historical consciousness plays in shaping listeners' engagement with popular music. So the focus of our discussion today is largely around your uh, article recently published in Ethnomusicology on tribute bands and historical consciousness. Could you describe for someone who has never been to a tribute band concert what one of these events is like?
2: Sure. So uh, obviously, they kind of vary pretty dramatically based on uh, the band being uh, being tributed, if if you can use that word, um, being having tribute paid to them, the venue, that type of thing. But for example, um, you know, some of the the bigger budget tribute bands that perform in um, theaters, uh, you know, like sort of Broadway style theaters um, around the country, a show like that, you know, tickets are going to be fairly expensive, maybe about thirty dollars and up, depending. Um, You know, as as you walk in, there will often be some sort of set on stage, um, kind of like a a theatrical production that that they may or may not use. There may be curtains. There'll probably be some sort of pre-show music happening often to sort of put you in a kind of a general ambiance of either the 1960s or the 1970s. Um, There may be video screens that are showing, for example, television commercials from the 60s or stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, when the, when the band comes on stage, um, very often in the case of Beatles tribute bands or Rolling Stones tribute bands or Led Zeppelin tribute bands or stuff like that, um, they'll be uh, dressed up in costumes, sometimes using wigs to make themselves look like, you know, the members of those bands, um, often they'll be playing, um, instruments that are either vintage or sort of copies of instruments from the 60s or 70s. Um, the whole idea, right, is to try to sort of recreate that music um, and the visual experience of it too, um, sort of as authentically as possible. And a- authenticity is obviously a word that we kind of use a lot, um, but they use that word too. That's not me sort of imposing a term on them. They use the word uh, authentic and authenticity quite a bit. So um, they'll go through songs. Often they'll go sort of chronologically through a band's catalog. Um, sometimes, you know, taking sort of set breaks to change costumes or wigs or stuff like that. Sometimes if they're marking, for example, a particular anniversary, they'll play uh, an album all the way through sort of top to bottom. Um, uh, so that's a, a fairly common, um, sort of thing that happens. Um, the audience at trade band shows, you know, in the United States, uh, it's usually pretty white. Um, it is usually, you know, sort of more, uh, sort of middle-aged a lot of, uh, people in their fifties and sixties, but it's also, uh, probably more multi-generational, frankly, than a lot of popular music or a lot of other music you might see, um, and that you'll also see teenagers and people in their twenties uh, and thirties, uh, too, at these concerts.
0: Uh, Explain what you mean by historical consciousness in popular music.
2: I think a really sort of simple definition of historical consciousness is just the idea that the past matters in popular music. Um, And that seems like a simple thing to say, but um, honestly, I feel like that is quite a big shift in that there is a... Usually, a sense in popular music and in popular culture that it's about sort of the newness and novelty and whatever is hip and fresh and cool at this particular moment, um, and you know, so what I see in the tribute band world and you know, in in some other places that I talk about in the article is sort of this growing sense that you know, actually knowing about the past um, and in the case of tribute bands, recreating the past has become sort of an increasingly important thing in popular music culture.
0: You, you mentioned in your article. Uh, In relation to historical consciousness and and just how we understand history, you talk about some of the problems of of postmodernism and and how that sort of shifted or challenged uh, certain ways that we think about or understand history. Uh, Likewise, digitality has been a space where sort of postmodern interests or concerns have been raised. How does digital technology facilitate or problematize this process of constructing historical consciousness in popular music?
2: I think that having the access sort of to the raw materials, to sound recordings, to uh, narratives about what's happening in studios, what bands are doing at particular live shows and stuff like that, which we have, you know, we had a little bit before this sort of big digitization movement, but now we really have, um, there's a lot of information out there um, for people to look into. I think that the tribute band movement... um, Emphatically is like not a postmodern movement. Um, that's how it's often talked about. It's really a very modernist movement. They're very interested in history. They're very interested in lineage, They're very interested in identity. They're not interested in um, you know sort of playing with history or making things up or juxtaposing weird things. You know the sort of cut and paste aesthetic that sometimes people say. Oh, you know with digitization, um, you know you can sample two things and put them right next to each other, And if they make no sense whatsoever. You make this new object. Um, that's certainly true. Absolutely. Um, but in the, in the tribute band world, people aren't interested in doing that really. They're really interested in these histories and in, um, getting stuff sort of as exact as possible, as close as possible, as authentic as possible. They're not interested in sort of playing with history, um, in the kind of postmodern sense that, you know, a a lot of people write about and and a lot of people find very interesting. Um, and I find that interesting too, but that's not what the tribute band world is really about.
0: A moment ago, you were talking about objects and, and the connection of these different parts of tangible culture and its connection with the music industry and these tribute bands. But it seems that ultimately, tribute bands are really all about the live musical experience. Their existence is built upon live performances, right? So what do we learn about liveness and the place of, of live music performance in contemporary culture through tribute band performances?
2: Right. Well, I think we learned that liveness hasn't gone away. There's this idea sometimes that, um, uh, that, that, that liveness is no longer interesting to people. Um, I I, think that the tribute band world sort of shows that that's not true, at least for these groups of, this group of folks, um, liveness is still very much what they're interested in. We have, I mean, through digitization and through, you know, the record industry putting out all these commodities out there, uh, box sets and, uh, books and that sort of thing. So we have this sort of that, that access to the recorded or the written version of history um, and you know um, fans of classic rock are very interested in the recorded and written versions of history but a lot of people say you know like why why do i go to a tribute band concert or why do i think people come to tribute band concerts it's because that isn't enough the written and the recorded isn't enough they want the live experience of it um and so that's why they come to a tribute band concert um now of course the caveat uh, is that you know the tribute band concert is not a course, the quote-unquote sort of real band. Um, it isn't the Beatles. It isn't the Rolling Stones. It isn't Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin. But, you know, uh, so, you, so you sort of have the, uh, the written and the recorded pointing to the tribute band performance, and the tribute band performance... Is really sort of pointing to this kind of other absent thing—the sort of live, real, actual band. If you could experience that in the 1960s or the 1970s at Woodstock or at, at wherever. Um, so there's this kind of this kind of uh, chain there. But but bottom line is that I think liveness is still a very uh, sort of important um, thing for people in the tri- in the tribute band world. I mean, you're absolutely right to say that's the abs- thats the reason it exists. Otherwise, you know, I ask people this all the time. You know, like why not? just sit at home with nice headphones and a comfortable chair and listen to these records and read these books. Um, that seemed more enjoyable than, you know, Buying tickets and you know maybe having to get a babysitter or, or, or what a, a, you know dealing with traffic and parking and all those things that get into the way that are sort of the annoyances of having to go out into the world. Why deal with all that? And you know they say it's because the live experience adds something um, to their experience of this music. And the, the other part of it, of course, is being in the company of other like-minded folks who um, you know are similarly fans of this music and and forming a sense of community um, that otherwise you don't necessarily get if you're just at home. Listening to the stuff on your headphones, or you're in your car listening to it, or whatever.
0: When I was reading your article and you discuss look like bands and and the decision whether or not to become a look like band being an important one for any tribute band, it made me wonder about Elvis impersonators. Hmm. How do look like bands differ from other types of tribute performances, such as so called impersonators?
2: Yeah, so it's a it's a slippery slope, and I think. Um, So the the first thing to say is that some tribute bands who are not lookalike bands would actually say that there isn't a difference. And they would say that that's one of the reasons that they don't want to become like a quote unquote sort of lookalike band is because they're worried about seeming like an Elvis impersonator. What are they worried about seeming like? Well, I think there's this idea that impersonators are uh, less serious, more kind of campy um, and kind of for the the shock of seeing someone looking like Elvis or or dressing up like Elvis as opposed to um the music being sort of a, a primary thing. So I think um I think that's the kind of the the difference. And in for 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 true bands that do try to look like um uh, Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd or Radiohead or, or whomever um I think that there's still even when they do that they, they, um, I think they're wary most of the time about seeming like they're not serious, like it's just for fun. Um, even though of course they are having fun. Um, but, but, I think there's this idea that the music is still the primary thing, even though I'm doing all these other things with, uh, my dress and with accents and with hair and wigs and that sort of thing, the music is still primary. So I think that's, I think that's a big difference. Um, you know, I haven't really looked at, uh, Elvis impersonators uh, people keep telling me that I need to do that. Um, and that's probably true. I need to spend some time in Vegas doing that. Um, because maybe I'll talk to Elvis impersonators and I'll say, no, we're deadly serious about what we do. And we think this is very important. And Elvis is my favorite person in the world. And I think he's a great artist and a great musician, uh, I I would not be surprised, frankly, if an Elvis impersonator uh, told me that. So, But insofar as it's viewed from the tribute band world, yeah, it's about uh, the idea of seriousness, I think, and the primacy of the music relative to the other elements of the performance. Do you
0: think there's something to tribute bands paying tribute to a band as opposed to impersonators paying tribute to individual artists that... Is there something there that, that within the context of a of a group, they sort of escape maybe what is seen as as not as serious or or or, 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 or kitschy or
2: yeah. So I mean that's no, no that's a really good question. I you don't frankly see people who market themselves as tribute elvis tributes. You do see Elvis impersonators. And that's um I and and i don't necessarily if if the def, if the difference between an impersonator and a tribute is that a tribute takes it more seriously and puts the the music at the forefront if we sort of accept that uh you know sort of tentatively and there's no reason why there couldn't be an elvis tribute um but i think that they would get pigeonholed as an elvis impersonator um you know i don't know the whole history of sort of elvis impersonators but um, i'm i'm guessing that they kind of predate the sort of at least the, the kind of larger coming to prominence of tribute bands. I mean, you have tribute bands in the 1970s, but they really only sort of come to prominence, I would say, um, since about 2000, um, as sort of a big sort of cultural force, where you have, I'm guessing, you know, you have impersonators long before that. And so they fill a kind of particular role that we know and we're familiar with, um, whereas tribute bands are sort of a, a slightly newer, I think.
0: But there's also this hierarchical relationship in terms of think about the tribute bands in connection with the artists that they are tributing, in terms of how we think of those musicians, what what are your thoughts about that? That sort of hierarchical relationship between the tribute band and the artists that they are performing. Yeah,
2: I think it's it's very clear. I think it is exactly what you just said. I mean, I think that there is this idea that it is uh, uh, Jimmy Page or Robert Plant or Paul McCartney or uh, or Jimi Hendrix or Pete Townshend who is the great genius held up on high um and that uh the true band musician is definitely second now the question is how close of a second uh the true band musician is but it's definitely a second and and is great in so far as um he you know, i should say it is usually he although there are female tribute bands which are are quite interesting too like Led Zeppelin which is a tribute to uh, Led Zeppelin which is they're actually a very interesting band Um, but in the and mostly it is he um, so uh, so the true band musician is held up insofar as he is able to be exactly like this sort of uh great hero. And there is definitely a hierarchy that like the best you can do is to be a good copy. Um, and you're never going to be, uh, seen as sort of an artist and a genius with a capital A and with a capital G the way that these other, uh, folks are. So yeah, there, there definitely is, um, um, that sort of hierarchy, um, you know, and, and th- this type of thing, it, it goes back a long ways uh, in my dissertation, like I talked uh, like there's a quote from Plato where he talks about um, imitation and poetry and and uh, it's in my dissertation, but there's there's some line where he says, you know isn't it a, it a much more noble thing to be the subject of a eulogy than someone who writes a eulogy? you know isn't it a much more noble thing to be someone who create who is a creator than as someone who pays homage to a creator? Um, so that's obviously you know that that's an idea that has pretty deep roots in Western culture. Um, if that's going back to Plato. Um, and I think that these uh, these tribute bands definitely sort of fit in um, to that hierarchy. And again, I mean, not to always compare it to, to Western classical music, but the tribute band musicians and fans do this themselves. In the same way that Beethoven or Mozart or whomever is held up as a, as a great genius, you know, we may think that uh, Murray Pariah is a very great uh, interpreter. Richard Good is a very great interpreter uh, on the piano of those guys' works. But we usually don't hold them up, sort of, to the level of of genius. You know, they're, you know, Richard Good is is he's amazing at playing the Beethoven piano but he's not Beethoven. Um, so that idea, I think, is is around in culture. I think tribute bands um, definitely pick up on that sort of larger current in the culture. It's not something that's unique to the tribute band scene, but the tribute band scene sort of has its own particular sort of version of it.
0: So, what got you into this topic in the beginning?
2: So, I think that tribute bands. Bring up so many sort of Im- important and interesting ideas in the study of music. So the nature of performance, um, canonization, what a work is, what a text is, how um, is history constructed and told. Um, they bring up just so many important issues that I was thinking about in, in my grad seminars. You know, early in graduate school, um, but. But no one was talking about tribute bands. There was hardly any work uh, at all about tribute bands, Um, I think because they seemed like they were sort of too familiar, that it was too, um, uh, you know, uh, frankly, sort of middle class and white and and and, and American, that it wasn't um, either, you know, maybe exotic enough or strange enough or different enough. but to me, it seemed like they were bringing up so many sort of important issues and it was happening right under our noses. I mean, there were trip band shows that were happening all the time that I was seeing advertised um, and it seemed crazy that no one was was paying more attention to this. Um, so so that's how I got into it. Um, and, you know, as ethnomusicologists, we're trained um, to try to sort of uh, understand the culture on its own terms uh, and and not to sort of bring our preconceived ideas about uh, musical beauty or what's good or what's bad in in music or what's good and what's bad in culture. and so to to apply that same kind of uh, sort of outsider's knowledge or, or sort of outsider's perspective, I should say, to something that seemed like it was so transparent and that it was so obvious as to what was happening, um, to me it seemed clear that there, it wasn't obvious at all. That this was a very interesting and and unexpected uh sort of scene that was happening kind of right under our noses. Yeah. So that's that's how I got into that's how I got into the Tribune stuff when I when I was in graduate school. And when
1: you're in- the pussy's garden in the shade, don't no need to hide your love away. Boy, you're gonna carry that way. And if meet Mr. Mustard is being brutal to you, I'll call up my friend Judy. He'll come save
0: the Ethno Musicology today is produced with the help and support of many people. Thanks to our student research and production assistants, Alyssa Bavinette and Brianna Glenn consulting editor, Harry Berger, and our advisory board members, Portia Maltby, Les Gay, Martin Stokes, David Kaminsky, and Leon Garcia-Corona. Additional support and encouragement has been provided by SEM president, Beverly Diamond, and first vice president, Margaret Sarkissian, and SEM executive director, Stephen Stimfly. Special thanks to Carly Page for the music in this episode. You can hear the entirety of her song, Just Imagine, along with many of her other songs on her YouTube channel or on her website at carlypage.com. Thanks again to John Myers for talking with us about his research. This podcast is produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology with the support from the University of Iowa College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and the Iowa Center for Research by Undergraduates.
1: Our Ooh, just imagine. And everyone will believe if you imagine come together and create a new beginning and an end that's great just imagine just imagine